Good morning. My name is Mary Day Miller, and I am the Executive Minister for the American Baptist Churches of Massachusetts, one of the three denominations with which this church is affiliated. And uh, it's indeed a pleasure to be with you today to have the opportunity to thank you for your partnership with us in the work of the gospel. American Baptists have 260 churches in Massachusetts of all shapes and sizes and uh, two camps that we operate as well. And it's so wonderful to be able to be with you today. Now, I've been in this role for about two and a half years, and I am new to Massachusetts, to New England, as you may have gathered from my accent. You don't talk like you're from around here. I, uh, I was born and raised in Virginia, but spent most of my um, years of ministry pastoring in the Midwest before accepting this call Um, As I said, it'll be three years ago this summer. But, you know, I've had the opportunity now. People will often ask me, how do you like New England? And I'll say, you know, there's a lot to love about New England. Um, why Why are they laughing? I don't know. First of all, I will tell you that part of my heritage is that I am a third generation Boston Red Sox fan. Always she goes for the cheap applause. My grandfather, for reasons unknown, uh, lived his whole life in West Virginia, but loved the Red Sox with all his heart. My mother, who is 90, uh, never misses a Red Sox game. And it was the great joy of her life when she learned that I would be moving to Massachusetts. (laughs) There are many other things to love about New England. Um, You have marvelous summers. (laughs) If they ever get here, yes. Now, I will tell you that I I mean that uh, very sincerely, having grown up in a place where the summers are brutally hot and humid, so uh, I really do enjoy that. Um, I've had to learn some new skills, um, how to pronounce the names of towns. Uh, I will congratulate you on being from one of the few places in Massachusetts that actually is pronounced like it's spelled, Brookline unlike several others of very confusing pronunciations of their cities. Um, I've had to learn how to drive assertively (laughs) in order to stay alive. But I'll tell you what else I've really loved about coming to Massachusetts, and that is that Massachusetts is the very uh, starting place of our history as Baptists. And I'm going to tell you a little of that today um, in order just to share and to celebrate for our uh, Baptist portion of the family, but really for all of us, the way that that our nation has been blessed by our Baptist forebears. I want to begin by kind of reminding you that There are many people out there today who have appropriated the name Baptist but fail to understand what Baptists have historically represented. I'm not going to spend too long on that today, but I give that as sort of a disclaimer 
because some of what you're going to hear this morning does not line up with what you hear when the news covers some wild and crazy group that has appended the name Baptist um, and does not know uh, what it is that we stand for. Let me start very close to this place right here. 1665, two women and seven men came together to start a church that would become the First Baptist Church of Boston. Y'all have driven past it, I'm guessing. You know where it is. The church was formed in defiance of two laws, that persons wishing to form churches must first obtain consent of the magistrates and elders of the greater part of the churches within their jurisdiction, and that if any person or persons within this jurisdiction shall oppose the baptizing of infants, such persons or person shall be subject to banishment. Did y'all know that was true? Because let's remember, the pilgrims came to America for religious freedom, but as we say in the South, bless their hearts, they turned right around and imposed the same kind of restrictions that they were theoretically coming here to escape. In the years that followed, many were punished for trying to practice the Baptist heresy. They were arrested, jailed, fined, publicly beaten, and often were not allowed to speak in their own defense. Now, the group that would become First Baptist of Boston started off meeting in homes Later, they met in a home in, on Noddles Island, which is now where Logan Airport is, right? They filled all that in. The members of the First Baptist Church would row out to the island where they could meet in secrecy. 1679, they built their first meeting house. And one Sunday in 1680, the worshipers found the doors of the church nailed shut. By order of the general court, the following notice posted, all persons are to take notice that by order of the court, the doors of this house are shut up and that they are inhibited to hold any meeting therein or to open the doors thereof without license from authority till the general court take further order as they will answer the contrary at their peril by order of the council. If we have any lawyers in the house, it may comfort you to know that they've kind of always talked like that. I didn't mean that to be lawyer bashing. Some of my best friends are lawyers. But anyway, those first Baptists in Boston met outdoors in the cold and the rain, undaunted. The following Sunday, inexplicably, the doors were found open and they were not, again, closed by authorities. So all of this is to say that Baptist concepts of religious, and free, religious liberty and freedom of conscience were forged at the hands of the persecution that they endured, state churches and governments in England and here in the U.S. You see, these early Baptists realized something important. That for anyone to have their religious rights genuinely protected. Everyone had to be protected, including and especially religious minorities. Now today I want to tell you a little bit more about this gentleman, John Leland, 
a Massachusetts preacher. He was one who did the groundbreaking political work that pushed into the founding documents of the United States the religious freedom that protects anyone of any religion. Now, he was first and foremost a Baptist preacher. And I want to give a special kudos to the musicians who found a couple of his hymns and are sharing them in our musical program this morning. If you did not notice that, uh, two of the musical selections we have were written by him. Yep, he was a Baptist preacher, but he also knew how to play a little political hardball. And he did it to ensure that freedom of religion would make it into the U.S. Constitution. Now, the author of that document, who would later become President of the United States, you may remember, is well known, James Madison. The preacher who challenged Madison on religious liberty is one of those heroes of the faith that is all but unknown today. Leland joined the Baptists as a young man, quickly became a preacher, at different times left his native Massachusetts for Virginia. The time was 1776, the War of Independence was underway, and after winning their revolution, the struggling colonies tried to organize together. A constitutional convention was convened in Philadelphia to draft a new document primarily penned by James Madison. It was completed in 1787 and sent to the former colonies to be ratified. Now, you probably remember all that stuff from your high school history class. But here is the point at which John Leland stepped into the process. Leland spoke and wrote extensively on the topic of religious liberty. He wrote this, government should protect every man in thinking and speaking freely and to see that one does not abuse another. The liberty I contend for is more than toleration. The very idea of toleration is despicable. It supposes that some have preeminence above the rest to grant indulgence, whereas all should be equally free. Jews, Turks, pagans, and Christians. Now let's remember we're still in the era when all of the states had official state churches except for Rhode Island and Pennsylvania. Leland mobilized the Baptists in Virginia to push for religious liberty. The Baptists were almost the only group to support Thomas Jefferson's act for establishing religious freedom. Most of them supported Patrick Henry's bill to support taxes to support, to to, uh, assess taxes to support teachers of the Christian religion. James Madison joined the cause, and Madison's version of the bill eventually passed in the Virginia General Assembly. Leland urged Madison to press the issue further in the Constitution, perhaps to add a Bill of Rights as an amendment And Madison was opposed to it. Here's where the political hardball came in. 
Leland ran against Madison as a delegate to the Virginia Constitution Convention. With the support of Baptists throughout the state, it became clear that Leland was beginning to have more votes than Madison. Madison visited Leland's farm, and they came to an agreement. Leland would drop out of the race, and Madison would join Leland in calling for an amendment to the Constitution, guaranteeing religious liberty, free speech, and a free press. On June 7, 1789, Madison submitted the first version of what became the First Amendment to the Bill of Rights, and religious freedom became U.S. law. Now, those of you who read the pastor's blog this week know that I promised you a story about cheese. Leland was so excited when Jefferson was elected in 1800 that he sent Jefferson a block of cheese weighing 1,235 pounds. The Cheshire cheese made here in Massachusetts which he proudly announced was made from the milk of Massachusetts cows, the whole town working together, and none of it was contributed by either Federalist or slaveholder, for Leland was a proud abolitionist. Leland and his friends further honor Jefferson by marking the cheese with one of Jefferson's favorite phrases. Rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. That's pretty good, isn't it? I'll eat a piece of that cheese. While a friend to Jefferson, Leland made a lot of enemies. After he preached to Jefferson in a joint session of Congress, one congressman called Leland a cheesemonger. You got to love those colorful insults of yesteryear. Now let's talk a minute about what this freedom of faith is that we're talking about. Like the other positions of ethics held by the Baptist family, they were drawn from Scripture as a whole rather than from one or two specific verses. Jesus, after all, tells us that he is the author of freedom, both of conscience and of worship. In John 8, 32, when he says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And in 8, 36, where he says, if the Son sets you free, then you are free indeed. Jesus was clear to separate church and state in Matthew 22 when he said, Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and give to God the things that are God's. He instru- Paul instructs the Christians at Ephesus to live in harmony with the government where possible, and even to pray for their leaders. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Peter says, Submit to every human institution because of the Lord, whether to emperor as supreme authority, or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. 
For it is God's will that you, by doing good, silence the ignorance of foolish people. As God's slave, live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a way to conceal evil. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. There are many other passages where our belief in religious liberty is founded. But we begin with the affirmation that God alone is Lord of our conscience. This conviction is at the heart of all ideas of religious liberty. The idea that God alone is Lord of our conscience. The one who in his word tells us what to believe and to practice. But religious liberty is simply stated the right of every person to worship God or not as they see fit. Without any interference from anyone, most especially not the government, but under the direction of God, the one to whom we will all give account. A great Baptist preacher of the last century was George W. Truett. In 1920, Truett delivered a sermon from, of all places, the United States Capitol. He stood there preaching to between 10 and 15,000 people, and he said this about religious liberty. Truett said, It is the natural and fundamental and indefeasible right of every human being to worship God or not, according to the dictates of his conscience. And as long as he does not infringe upon the rights of others, he is to be held accountable alone to God for all religious beliefs and practices. Our contention is not for mere toleration, but for absolute liberty. There's a wide, to- uh, wide difference between toleration and liberty. Toleration is a gift from man. Liberty is a gift from God. And then he said this. God wants free worshipers and no other kind. We don't believe that people should be forced to worship God, nor do we believe that they should be in any way kept from worshiping God. We believe that God's work is accomplished by God's people through the power of the Holy Spirit, not by the enforcement of some outside authorities. We do not believe in making converts at the edge of the sword or any kind of coercion in matters of faith. Part and parcel of this separation of church and state is the belief that the state should neither impose penalty for religious belief, nor should it impose taxes for any form of religion. Jesus didn't look to the Roman authorities to further his kingdom. Nor did the disciples, nor did Paul. In fact, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. At the end of the day, we realize that religious freedom is both a blessing and a curse. 
It's a blessing that it affords us the privilege to worship God as we wish, where we wish, with whom we wish, without fear of punishment or reprisal. While we acknowledge that this is a God-given right, it's nonetheless a pretty unique phenomenon. Looking back over history and looking around the world today, there are few people who have had as much religious freedom as those of us do who are citizens of the United States. You see, the problem with blessings is this. We come to take them for granted. Like a child raised on a trust fund who never learned to work, never learned the value of money. There are a great many Americans who have no concept of how truly precious and unique our religious liberty is. And taking it for granted, they fail to protect it. I want to close with these words. Embracing the blessing of our religious freedom challenges us to make the most of it. To go out into the world as the church of Jesus Christ, not Baptists and Methodists and UCC, but as people of God, to do the work that he has called us to do. Remembering that the gospel was never so much about gathering people in as it has been sending people out. As salt and light in this world, we're called to be faithful to the responsibility that God has given us. May the Lord, by his spirit, help us to make it so. Amen.